Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com coming to you almost as usual after a little break from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I am very pleased to welcome to the programme the Reverend Phil Saker, who is a Christian minister. He is ordained in the Church of England and spends a couple of days a week in a parish on the Essex coast here in England. The rest of his time he works on online ministries. He has a couple of online ministries. Uh, the first here called uh, Understand the Bible, which you can find at understandthebible.uk. So not .co.uk, which is what I expected to find, but no .uk, understandthebible.uk. And the other one, um, which is how I found out about him, is on YouTube called Phil Sacra. That's Phil with two L's. Phil Sacra, making sense of the world from a Christian perspective, which sounds strangely familiar to me, actually. Phil Sacra, sorry, Phil Saker, apologies, Phil Saker, making sense of the world from a Christian perspective. Uh, Phil, welcome to TMR. It's very good to be speaking with you. Uh, thank you, and thanks for having me on. You're absolutely welcome. Thanks for agreeing to come on. I'm sorry about that mess up with your name, because I'm quite sure <laughs> I'm going to do that again and again, because over the last uh, week or so, I've been thinking about speaking to you. I've got your name wrong inside my head <laughs> many, many times. Hope you don't mind too much. It's, that's, everyone does. It's absolutely <laughs> okay. fine. It's an unusual name. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So as I said, I first came across you and your work on your YouTube channel, mm. and I think that was actually via a link on Toby Young's Lockdown Skeptic website, which is mm -hmm. now called The Daily Skeptic. So if anybody mm -hmm. wants to find it, I'll put notes, of course. It's The Daily Skeptic. So I think it's broadened its skepticism of subjects there. Mm. Um, so that was maybe a couple of months ago. And uh, ever since then, I've been sort of dipping into your productions. And I have been finding them actually very helpful. Mm. And that's not to say, and, and I'm going to say this straight away, as I often do with guests, it's not to say mm. that I absolutely agree with absolutely everything that you say, mm -hmm. um, as will be apparent as we have this conversation, but mm. it really because of what you're doing mm. and the way that you've been going about it. Mm -hmm. So I've been impressed by the fact that you, you know, you are a Christian minister, ordained Christian minister. You've chosen very publicly to question many aspects of government policy with respect to COVID-19. Mm. And you've done that in a, I think, in a critically thoughtful way and in a theologically thoughtful way, using scripture. Mm. So, you know, I'm saying to you, thank you for sort of modelling a way for us to think about these mm. things, which, I, you know, by and large, well, I mean, you probably have more experience of the churches, as it were, than I do. But mm. by and large, from what I've seen, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of that. Um, and mm. one of your videos is called Why Has the Church... That's church with small c, the churches, as it yeah. were, not engaged theologically, you know, with lockdowns. Good question. Why is that mm. the case? So that's the area of discussion for today. Um, yeah. But before we get into that detail there, could you tell us a bit more about you as a person, but also why you started doing these online ministries? Okay. Well, personally speaking, I'm married. I've got um, two little girls, um, age uh, seven and age four. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I trained actually originally in, in computing. I studied computer science um, at university. I worked for seven years as a software developer. And then I felt, you know, God's call to enter ministry. So I went back to college um, and spent three years doing another degree in theology. And then I was ordained and I, I came here to where I am now on the Essex coast um, as a curate. And then I've just sort of stayed around. And um, yeah, wh why did I start the online, particularly mm. thinking about lockdowns and so on? Mm. Um, I think... It came about really because right at the start of the lockdown, I, I didn't like what was happening, but I just had, I suppose I just kind of went along with things because I thought, well, it's only going to be a short time. 
And what's the use in questioning? And let's just give them the benefit of the doubt, even if I don't agree. And then over time, I began reading, you know, lockdown skeptics. I began looking into some of the science and the evidence myself. And it, it just became clearer and clearer to me that the lockdowns were causing immense damage. Mm. The collateral damage was huge and that there was very little scientific uh, evidence that a lot of what was happening was actually, you know, it wasn't really following the science. It was more like following the politics. <laughs> you know, we kept on being told about following the science. Yes, yes indeed. I, I, indeed, I've heard that described as really following the narrative, which, as you say, is following, yes. following the politics. Yeah, indeed. Very much so. Mm. Um, and I just became more and more concerned. And, and I suppose I've, I have had an interest in culture and cultural engagement for a while, mm. This is what we call public theology in the church. I studied public theology as one of one of my um, courses at college, uh -huh. and that's just engaging from the Bible with what's happening in culture. Oh, that's interesting. Is that partly why you have a, a slightly jaundiced view of the current fad for online apologetics? Um, when you say in one of your videos that yeah. it's become rather in-house, you know, and it's always yes. responding to the questions that, as it were, the new atheists are always asking, so mm. they're always setting the agenda and that's therefore not quite engaging with the culture in a rounded sense. It's sort of mm. engaging with a particular segment of the culture all the time. Yeah. It's, it's funny, actually. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it, but that might be something to do with it. Mm. I guess that the video that I did about apologetics, that was just a thought that I had. Mm. Um, but yeah, what, what I found was I just increasingly had these kind of thoughts about, you know, the culture and about where we were going. Mm. I, I have been blogging for about 20 years, although it started out as more of a this is what I have for breakfast kind of a blog. Um, and it sort of morphed into actually blogging about more serious matters sure. over time. Sure. What did you have for breakfast, by the way? You've got to tell <laughs> um, us what you did have for breakfast. <laughs> well, uh, I had I had some toast, um, if, if, if okay. you know, toast and jam and marmalade. Yes. Oh, very good. Well, I had yogurt and nuts. Oh, there we so go. So I think I beat you there on the health one. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and yeah, um, I, I guess particularly mm. this last 18 months, I really feel like so many of the threads that were running through society have kind of come out and exploded. And I just felt like it needed a response. And I wasn't seeing that response from the church, from the national church, even, you know, from within church networks, which I belong to or I'm familiar with, mm. with people I respect, um, people who teach the Bible and, and so on, and people who I, I think are theologically and educated and so on, that there was just so little response from them. Right. So um, why is that? That's my second question, really. Why, why is that? Yeah. Why has there been and continues to be so little theological, mm. rational scrutiny by the churches? Why is that? We could be all day discussing that question because I think there are many strands that go into answering that. Um, one strand, I think, is that the church, and this is something people have been saying for a long time, but the church is now overwhelmingly middle class. And I think there is a, an overlap of the leadership between our political leadership and our church leadership. You know, think about someone like Justin Welby, for example, mm. educated at Eastern. Mm. You know, he could easily be a politician right. with his background. So many of our bishops, our church leaders are from that stable mm. of the same as our political leaders. So I, I think there is a, a sense in which the church has become a part a wing of the establishment mm. you know like we were um, saying about following the narrative it's funny isn't it how if you question anything to do with the lockdowns you're seen as some sort of conspiracy theorist <laughs> even yeah. if you're quoting 
you know, like the Great Barrington Declaration, for example, you know, epidemiologists and, and so on from three of the world's top universities. Indeed, yes. And yet you're seen as some sort of conspiracy theorist. And I think that's been a large part of it, that a lot of church leaders have not wanted to rock the boat, to be seen as conspiracy theorists, to be seen as dangerous. Mm. Um, you know, I had that conversation with, with someone from the, the church who was saying my videos were dangerous. Oh, yes. And that's, that's the view. That's the view that a lot of church leaders, I think, take that to question. Didn't you receive a phone call or something about that? Yeah, that's right. Someone complained about me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a phone call about it. And yeah, that, that seems to I mean the conversations that I've had. So I'm, I'm not um, a vicar. Uh, I've got what's called permission to officiate. And I kind of help out with our church. But um, I, I've had conversations with our vicar here and without kind of going into too much detail. Whenever I talk to him, I do feel very much like I'm some sort of, I mean, come back to that word conspiracy theorist, like I'm, you know, it's a minority position. It's kind of like believing that the earth is flat. Mm. You know, <laughs> yeah, that's that's the level. Yeah. Well, there's no doubt about it that the term and the the concept, even if unspoken, of conspiracy theorist is something that has clearly been weaponized mm. uh, by the establishment mm. to discredit anybody, yeah. anybody who questions. Um, and it's very mm. interesting. I was just thinking that you know people have had their videos deleted from YouTube, for example, when they've actually been quoting scientific journals mm. making a point about it you know and that's been treated as being conspiracy theory yeah. you know so it really is just an excuse for censorship very often isn't it yeah that's right and it's sad that 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 seems to be going on in the church mm. you know discussion of alternative views is not permitted yes and this is why i just felt so strongly that i had to to speak out mm. because it's one thing to say that the evidence sort of points in one direction um, but it's another thing, I think, not to permit debate about the right course of action. Absolutely. You know, that with something as unprecedented as lockdowns, they've not really been tried before, certainly not in the Western world. Mm. Went against I got, what the pandemic planning had exactly. recommended, including the yes. UN, yes. Yes, we ditched all of it. Mm. And, you know, the scientific evidence, there are numerous scientific papers now which show that lockdowns make very little, if any, difference in the sense of controlling the pandemic, which is what they're implemented for. But they do cause immense harm. Um, like I, I always you know, say that if, if you see harm happening, something wrong happening, and you say nothing, then you know what they say, silence is violence. And that's, that's obviously <laughs> part of social media, which I it's often applied to issues which I, I wouldn't necessarily agree with. But I think on this, for me, that was the case. You know, silence would have been wrong. Um, it would have been complicit because I, I disagree with the lockdowns and I think they're causing harm mm. and uh, I couldn't stay silent. Yeah, and you bring up, of course, the very famous example of Sweden. Mm. Although it's yes. often said, oh, if you appeal to that, uh, you know, you, you're not reading the science properly. But uh, you yeah. know, <laughs> it's always going to be that, like that, isn't it? Yeah. But I mean, as far as I can see anyway, it does show that mm. locking down in the style that we've been locking down doesn't seem to make a huge deal of difference when you look at what Sweden did. Mm. And um, you, you were saying about, you know, all the collateral damage. Mm. I, I can't remember who it was I was listening to, but they just gave a list of things. I'm just going to mention these because it's quite striking. Mm. I think it was one of the people at the Question Everything 
conference, which was back in mm. the middle of July, um, they just listed... A few weeks ago. Yeah, it was um, cancer, because so many biopsies had not been taken, heart attacks, people not going to hospital, stroke, suicide, mental health problems, mm. loneliness, isolation, fear. Mm. Uh, fear disorders actually turning out to be a significant factor in a bad outcome for COVID-19, I hear from Chris Martinson's recent video. Mm. Job losses, debt, self-harm, lost education, mm. of course, for children, future of children significantly threatened economically, overdose, mm. mobility, deterioration in the elderly, obesity, abuse at home, you know, huge. I mean, to mm. what extent was any of that factored in with a cost-benefit analysis before this whole policy was enacted? Mm. I'm not aware of it, are you? No. Um, yeah. This is the bizarre thing, isn't it? That if you raise any of those things, people will nod along and agree, but they'll think, well, it's the lockdown was just necessary. Mm. And and this is what I've found in my discussions, both within and, and outside the church. People seem to have an unshakable belief that the lockdowns were necessary and that if we hadn't locked down, there would have been something far worse. And you cannot get past that belief. Mm. It's unshakable. And that, you know, all of the restrictions that we've been under, the social distancing, the masks, everything, if we hadn't have had that, it would have been far worse. So they're, they're sort of like a necessary evil for the moment. And whatever research you quote, whatever, I mean, the other day I shared an article on our GB News, which was about a lot of women are now feeling unsafe because there's been a dramatic rise in stalking because of mask wearing. And you think, well, that's an unintended consequence of mask wearing. And I shared it and I said, you know, people who are saying that masks are all safe and everything. Um, but, you know, there's just no engagement at all. It's as if, you know, you could shout whatever you like. But if someone on TV wearing a suit says you need to wear a mask, it's necessary. It seems like everyone, including the church, says, OK, then, and does it. And I, yeah. that's the attitude I just can't understand. It seems to defy logic. Yeah, and if you were to point, you've already mentioned the Great Barrington Declaration, if you were to point to that mm. and say, well, at least read it, mm. you would pick up a vibe straight away that, oh, well, that's very right-wing and that doesn't mm. care about people's lives because they're just saying, carry on with life. Okay, protect the very vulnerable. What about everybody else sort of thing? Mm. But, mm. you know, I actually, having read the Great Barrington Declaration, I mm. think there's a lot of sense in that, especially, yeah. and this is my own particular take on this, especially if you couple that with treatment, mm. early treatment and prophylaxis which we covered a lot on yeah. the program if people were actually told to prepare their immune terrain mm. you know vitamin d could be stressed yeah. and, and other things that you could do and then if you actually mm. had a cupboard full of things that would help you out in the event and if gps were allowed access to antiviral treatments instead of those being suppressed mm. then the whole great barrington scenario of protecting those who are particularly vulnerable and allowing everybody else to get mm. along with their lives and if they get sick okay start to go to the gp and say can you help me out mm. you know a lot of that would have made great sense as an alternative to what you know you've just been describing yeah um but if you talk about that um go on from your experience mm. if you were to say something like that to a lot of the people that you know how would they respond to that well uh, most people don't what i found is people just don't want to think about it mm. It's like this sort of, we're living in this technocracy now Absolutely. where the experts know best and people just don't question the experts because, you know, the experts are the ones who know. That's been one of the features of this pandemic. You know, think of Boris Johnson there in his press conferences with Chris Whitty and Patrick Valance standing next to him mm. that is stressed, we're following the science. Yeah. And, yes, you know, because yes, I yes. think people tend to have this sort of unshakable belief in science or modern medicine and, and so on um that we we just accepted it even if 
the science is not settled and you know the science is never settled is it you know this is something one of the points i try to make that yes. you know there is no such thing as the when it comes to science <laughs> absolutely um, <laughs> no that is a propaganda yes. term that's very clear to me in fact i've been calling it science because yeah. i got so fed up with it yeah. poking fun at myself as if i can't spell properly you know with a k science but what <laughs> what i mean to say is this isn't science because science mm. is a process and a methodology but it's presented yeah. as being what an institutional collection of institutions say mm. that's not science what actually sounds like the same kind of abuse of science that you you would get out of the soviet union you know mm. which is not to say it's as bad as that but maybe it could become as bad as that who knows mm. Uh, mm. it's very worrying and the whole business of having those experts there um, as you say does very much speak of technocracy mm. which is a term that people are becoming increasingly aware of and actually for years we've been talking about on the program mm. about technocracy as a movement with Pat Wood, who is an expert on that, and it's interesting to see how a lot of what he says is happening. It's, it's rising up all over the place, technocracy. Mm. These two people with Boris Johnson in the middle, um, that seems to me to be in itself a deliberate ploy to get people to conform mm. and just trust the science. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've read um, Laura Dodsworth's book, A State of Fear. I've not read it. I've heard her interviewed, so I've got an idea of yeah. what's in it, yeah. But one of the things that really struck me about that book which um, I don't think I quite appreciated before, is how much of what has been done in the last 18 months has been intentional. As you say, with Boris Johnson standing there with the scientific advisors to his side, previously I might have thought that was the decision that was just made kind of to to bolster his what he said, but but it's actually a, a calculated and, and decision that was made yeah. to you know reinforce that message that this is what the scientific community and the doctors are saying, you know, you must stay at home, otherwise there will be absolute carnage. And, you know, the the medical establishment, the NHS, they're all behind this. And, you know, it carries the full weight of scientific force. Mm. And that's what including them as part of the press conferences was. It was a deliberate move. Absolutely. It comes out of, does it not, the uh, SPIB, the Scientific mm. Pandemic Insights Group on Behaviours, which is a, a subgroup of SAGE, because we all know what SAGE is. I mean, even the term SAGE, mm. it seems to me, is deliberately chosen soon as, oh, this is the philosopher sitting under mm. the tree. You know, it's a SAGE. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is ironic, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, they use um, what they call nudges, don't they? Which is just a, mm. a euphemism for, well, psychological manipulation techniques, basically. Mm. This is from Gary Sidley's blog here. Um, there was an SPIB meeting on the 22nd of March. I'll put links to this so people can check it out. And it, you, know, you can go to the PDF, which proves this. So this is mm. 22nd of March, 2020. And the minutes of this meeting stated, mm. quote, the perceived level of personal threat needs to be increased using hard-hitting emotional messaging. So that in itself, just that sentence there, is evidence that they were trying to create these... Mm impressions, images, words, etc., to change people's behaviour. Pretty obvious, really. Mm. And I think, yeah, having those three people standing there in front of the camera was part of that. It's reasonable to think yeah. that it was. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I got from Laura Dodsworth book is that the um, Behavioural Insights team is big business now, right. um, that the UK exports it to many different countries and the government relies on it in many things. I think it's been about, it's David Cameron's government, about 10 years ago, that it was introduced. It was 2010. And the government have been re increasingly relying on it. And so it sh it's no surprise that over the last 18 months, they should have been at the forefront of the response to the pandemic in getting us to change our behaviour mm. by, as you say, using this hard-hitting emotional messaging, mm. creating um, a state of fear, as, as Laura, Laura Dosworth puts yes. it. Yes. And in case anybody thinks this is just made up, <laughs> mm. you can go there to the Behavioural Insights Team website, and this is what they say about themselves, the Behavioural Insights Team 
uh, BIT is a social purpose company that is jointly owned by the UK government, Nesta, the innovation charity, and BIT's employees. BIT was created in 10 Downing Street in uh, 2010 as the world's first, now wait for this, Mm. government institution dedicated to the application of behavioural sciences to policy. Mm. Now, I find that quite creepy, actually. Yeah, it is. Application of behavioural sciences to policy. In other words, covert manipulation. That's how I read that. Yeah, that's Um, exactly what it is. Very disturbing. Yeah. And and we are the victims of that. And the churches are the victims of that Mm. as a consequence. So we're actually, we're allowing ourselves to be manipulated covertly. Mm. And if we don't engage theologically and critically with that, then Mm. we are surely guilty of not doing so. You know, the lordship of Christ demands. Mm. We do critique the forces around us that are affecting us. seems essential to me. Yes, I I completely uh, agree with that. Um, One of the things in particular the tools that the government have used is that of fear. Mm. Perhaps not not necessarily fear of the virus, but fear of what you might do if you go out. You know, think of um, Matt Hancock, don't kill granny. If you go out, people will die. Those are messages which have been on those adverts. And Mm. it's interesting because, you know, the the Bible has a lot to say about the fear of the Lord. Mm. And in fact, I was just reading a book. I've just finished reading it called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves, all about the fear of the Lord. Fantastic book. You know, just saying that, you know, at the end of the day for a Christian, we should fear God more than anything else, Um, not the fear of a virus or the fear of anything else. It it just seems like churches have taken on this message of fear of the virus and let that be the dominant and controlling thing in services, all sorts of different ways, you know, not singing, not serving refreshments, um, you know, just encouraging people not, not even to meet. There's been no pushback at all. That's the point. Yes. Exactly. That's the point that I want to make, yeah. really, where we're joining hands on. This, yes. Is that there's been, well, perhaps not none at all, because I'll come on to that in a second. But sure. That there's been so little pushback. Mm. And it's the pushback that I think is important. It's the yeah. critique and it's the engagement with this. Mm. So we may disagree about certain of these non-pharmaceutical interventions, as they're called, mask wearing, sure. distancing, anti-social distancing, as mm. I call it, etc. Mm. We may disagree about some of the things that you say in your, your, your videos about that. But it's the engagement mm. that mm. is lacking. And it's that. Is, yeah. which is essential which is not to say that there has been no engagement because i'm you know i'm just going to say here that there have been some, there's uh i haven't followed this particularly but there's a uh, in scotland a reverend dr william ju philip mm. who has uh, brought legal action with regard to church closures in scotland there's a catholic yes, he, statement he's been excellent uh-huh. william philip yeah. yeah there's a catholic statement against uh, covid passports Mm. Um, John MacArthur famously of course yes, in America he's got to close his church in America mm. that's right yeah indeed in, in America um, but this is a global mm. issue um, mm. well, there's also the open letter which you signed mm. by church leaders to Boris regarding these vaccine passport certificates yes. um, which had well, actually, just over 1,500 signatures, which I think mm. if it was all ordained people, that would be fairly disappointing. Mm. Uh, but it's not just ordained, because I noticed there are Methodist local preachers, for example, mm. and I'm a Methodist local preacher. I didn't actually right. manage to sign it because it closed by the time oh, I was I considering signing it. Nevertheless, mm. I, I would have done. It has just um, reopened. Oh, has it? I because of the, the situation regarding vaccine passports. Um, obviously, by the time this podcast goes out, I'm not sure what the state will be, mm. but um, they've reopened the signatories. So it may be possible to sign that now. So yes, I'll probably go ahead Mm. and do that. That brings up another thing, doesn't it? You can never really be sure what's coming up the next day, Mm. what promises are going to be made. Broken. Indeed, and Mm. then broken, which Mm. U-turns are going to be made. Actually, I think the term U-turn, which comes up a lot in the media, is probably a false term in many cases. I think the promise was never intended in the first place very often. So it's not a U-turn, it's just a lie in the first place. Uh, Mm. That's very general. But the whole 
you know, thing with Michael Gove, so-called public consultation on vaccine certificates, mm. that seems to have been completely ignored. And there was a cross-party committee set up to look into the question of vaccine certificates, which was very, mm. very critical of the whole notion yeah. that seems to have been ignored. So I don't really take any of these statements seriously. I mean, you know, oh, we, we have no plans to introduce vaccine passports, wrote Nadim Sahawi, the so-called vaccine minister. Yes. No one has been given or will be required to have it a is. vaccine passport. And then we're mm. told they'll be needed for nightclubs. But then, you know, if you were to argue the thin end of the wedge, well, that would be that would be ridiculous, mm. wouldn't it? But then students will need them at university. Oh, no, they won't need them at university. Well, you know, who knows what's going to be said tomorrow? You know, the whole the whole landscape is, is full of lies, it seems to me. It's, it's funny, isn't it, how, um, mm. how the government now operate like this? Because it's something which has only just occurred to me um, again, but um, how you know, a few years ago when um, David Cameron's government introduced same-sex marriage, they had a consultation, in inverted commas, uh, and yeah. uh, that consultation was basically just ratifying what they'd already decided to do. They didn't actually want to listen to anyone. It was just holding a consultation, I think, in order to say that they'd held a consultation about it. But there was no sort of... Um, it wasn't in a manifesto. To be seen to have done the right thing, yeah. Exactly. It's really like an episode of Yes Minister, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so Humphrey said, well, what we really need is to have a public consultation. Yes. Minister. <laughs> you know, yes. Uh, to laugh about it. But, you know, it's serious, of course, because it's effectively lying. It is. Um, well, we all know that, that politicians do lie. But this is a kind of institutionalised mm. lying, isn't it? It's the modus operandi. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And that, yeah. that's been deeply troubling to me. Mm. Like I say, in one of my other um, videos about truth like you were saying you know we, we we may disagree about all sorts of things and i think disagreement is healthy and fine um and actually i mean i found that i've changed my opinion in you know as people have pushed back at me at, at some of the videos and that's that's how things are supposed to work you know the idea is that no human being can lay claim to absolute truth um because we are fallible we are we are human and we learn things by discussing and by disagreeing with each other and then saying, well, let's talk about this. Let's look at all the angles. Let's see. Um, but the government have not permitted any of that. And, you know, this approach they seem to have been taking up. I mentioned the same-sex marriage um, thing. It just seems to be the, the way of doing things now that they will commit to a course of action and they won't solicit different opinions or anything about it. Um, it will be, you know, we have decided we're going to do this and you've all got to get on board with this. This is the way forward. It's the gospel. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. And it was, it's notable, isn't it? Thinking back to Brexit, when that happened, it, it sort of seemed to upset the apple cart when they did actually ask people what they wanted. And um, it turned out that, you know, 52% of people didn't want what they thought everyone wanted. So, it's a, you know, when you actually ask people, if you sort of railroad a certain view, you won't lead, lead people on. But if you have a dialogue, if you allow everyone to contribute then you can sort of come up with a, a sort of compromise, can't you? Um, anyway, but it's, it's the way that truth has just been completely, you know, one-sided in the sense that only only their truth matters and any other perspective is completely um, a non-starter. It's considered to be misinformation yeah. it? or disinformation. It's funny how those terms have become ubiquitous now mm. uh, a few years back i think people would hardly have heard about it i mean it obviously happened with all the sort of the hysteria about russia but mm. it's just all the time now isn't it? oh you're accused of misinformation whether what you say is true or not has any merit or not if it doesn't follow the narrative of the science then yeah it's it's deleted or criticized or whatever it is a most mm. most unhealthy and, and very very unscientific mm. has to be said yes. atmosphere that we're living in at the moment yeah. well it's, it's like the um the lab leak theory yes, yes. Uh, the fact checkers 
called it a conspiracy theory <laughs> until... Which it never was. <laughs> That's interesting, because well, it never was a conspiracy theory, was no. it? There's nothing about that. Something leaking from a lab. That... It was just following the evidence. Yeah, but you know what I mean? I mean, formally yeah. speaking, where's the conspiracy in that? If something yes. leaks from a lab, there's no necessary conspiracy to... Well, there isn't. It's a leak, isn't it? It's involuntary. It's a leak. Yeah. <laughs> so go on, yeah. Yes. Oh, no. And, and then then the fact checkers changed their story as soon as mm. Dr. Fauci in, in America said, well, actually, we might need to look into this. And then they, then, and that's the thing. They, the fact checkers check consensus, not facts. Yes. It's deeply politicized. Yes. And the fact that people, but particularly, I think, people in the church are una- unable to see the way that truth has been politicized is very worrying. I think it shows a real lack it of discernment. Very, hugely worrying. Mm. I think it reflects the way we're taught. We're not taught to think in that way, are we? Mm. Um, probably because it's not wanting to upset the apple cart and always be seen, as you, as you were saying, the middle class sort of thing, generally, mm. you know, wanting to be seen to be also wearing that tie and looking respectable. No, but we should be taught to think critically and we should be taught to actually, I think, have an uneasy relationship with the state, mm. a relationship of tension with the state, which is something that Martin, Dr. Martin Edmonds has been on this programme and mm. wants to stress very much. Um, And there are a lot of things that happen in our services that I think tend Mm. to move in the opposite direction, don't they? Of sort of implying, sort of taking for granted that the state is benign, that that Mm. our leaders are trying to do the right thing in in our prayers and and that sort of thing. And of course, I'm not saying we shouldn't therefore pray for people in positions Mm. of power. I think we should, but we shouldn't assume or imply, you know, that they're doing the right thing. They want to do the Mm. right thing. And in fact, many times when I've been preaching and leading prayers, I will sort of leave room for that notion, you know, say things like, you know, even though many of them don't know you, we ask you nevertheless to guide their decisions, that sort of thing. And I I think we need to do more of that, really. Mm. Okay, well, I want to, gosh, there's so many things to talk about all the time. We're touching on so many issues. Um, Yeah. So I I want to come to perhaps something where we will disagree on slightly yeah um just in details sure you talk about mm. you know these measures these minor non-pharmaceutical in- interventions mm. you know, wearing masks uh, discouraging people from hugging mm. not singing in church and those sorts of things and mm. your take on this generally has been we shouldn't have gone for any of that and we should have trusted god to protect us in defying those particular either uh, instructions or encouragements um tell us how you get there well, this is where maybe having doing the videos, as it were, as a monologue, is helpful to have a bit of pushback, just because it helps to clarify on these kind of matters. Because I, obviously, there is in Christian theology and term, you know, if I throw myself under a bus, I mustn't expect God to protect me. Absolutely, that would be a foolish thing to do. And clearly, there is some kind of a continuum, a spectrum of safety where some things are just sensible and right to do, like wearing a seatbelt, for example. And I I did a video about wearing a seatbelt and how that differs from masks. Um, But I think clearly God does expect us to use our common sense. Yeah. Uh, And and this is what really what I've been trying to say, that um, these things should be up to each individual's conscience rather than mandated by the government. Yeah. Um, Because social distancing, for example, or anything like that, it may be appropriate for someone who is very frail and elderly, like yes. there may be some in our congregation or perhaps some in care homes who you want to be extra careful with. And some people may be more cautious anyway, naturally more cautious. Uh, at the same time, there are people in their, you know, maybe teens or 20s who are at very low risk of, of COVID. And to say socially distance with them, I think is mm. pointless. Um, I, I certainly don't think that we need to throw all caution to the wind. Um, but rather, I do think it is. it does betray, I think, the fact that we haven't sung, the fact that 
you know we've been so you know kind of top down this top down approach mm. maintain your your distance um don't talk inside talk outside don't hold services even in some cases um, i mean a lot of churches didn't even open when we were allowed to mm. and um, mm. they only reopened relatively recently yeah, I heard somebody say, you know, what was wrong with car parks? Yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, there were... But let, let me just pin you down here, because, sure, you know, I was sure. trying to think of the practicalities of some of the things that you were saying, so about the singing band. Mm. It was never, as far as I understand, it was never actually a singing ban. No. But it was a heavy discouragement not to sing, mm. certainly in our church. Even now, although we're supposed to be Freedom Day, it's supposed to happen, and all yeah. this sort of nonsense. Yes. Uh, nevertheless, the church leadership has decided, that if you want to sing, you have to keep a mask on. Mm. Right. <laughs> um, oh. So what, Follow the so, science. Right, so what I was there on Sunday. Well, indeed, mm. everybody who sang had a mask on. Mm. I chose not to sing, mm. but it, it has to be said that even though you were permitted to just sit there and enjoy the service, apart from singing, you didn't have to have your mask on. Mm. Uh, 25 people out of 30 still kept their mask on. Mm. And I was quite disturbed by that because I don't believe mm. for a moment that most of the people in that congregation genuinely believed that they had COVID or even had a slightest chance of having COVID and could mm. present some sort of minimal risk to anybody else. I don't think so whatsoever. And I don't think most of them would think, well, I don't know, maybe they thought they were protected by wearing a mask themselves. I don't know. But mm. if that's the case, they were mistaken because I don't think even the science you know, says that mm. uh, you protect yourself by wearing a mask. So I, I just thought that was all mm. a hangover from the conditioning that we'd mm. had previously. Yeah. Um, okay, so in the early days of mm. all this, we really didn't know what was going on. So yeah. I was much more positive about the idea of an initial lockdown mm. and initial measures. So we were told, only just to flatten the curve and all that, just a little while. Mm. Um, but, you know, become much more unhappy with it over the weeks and mm. months that have followed. But let's go back to the early days and thereafter with not singing. Mm. You say that we're commanded to sing. Mm. So then would it not have been irresponsible, particularly in the early days of this, to have said, well, the Lord commands us to sing. Mm. We're going to do that. We won't wear masks. We'll stay inside. We'll be right close to each other. Mm. And we're going to sing our hearts out and maybe mm. spread this virus. Now, we'll come on to asymptomatic mm. transmission in a second. But assuming that that's a thing and it's yeah, yeah. a big thing, um, would that not have been irresponsible? Um, I, well, I, I don't think so. Um, I, I suspect most churches would probably not have done. Um, I, I don't know whether they're right to do that or not. Um, there's a verse in the Bible which says, mm. uh, He who honours me, I will honour. And I said this to our, our vicar here, actually, when we were talking about it, is can you justify not singing from the Bible for any reason? You know, because we were we were sort of discussing it. And, and I think it's very difficult. And, and part of it, I think, goes back to the this question of where our safety comes from. From a theological perspective, um, safety ultimately comes from God. You know, who's in control of, of a virus? Is it the government? Is it the measures that we put in place? Or is it God? And um, I believe that it is God, ultimately. You have the word ultimate there. Mm. So I think that's where we would see a difference. I mean, sure, you can't say that every single instance of the virus being transmitted from one person to another, ending up in going to the ICU and dying, is God being in control in that sort of lower level individual instance, because that would make God into a monster. Well, I, I, I think... I, I presume you're, when you say ultimate, you're talking in something much more sovereign terms as God being in control of the whole show, and none of this is happening without his mm. permitting it for whatever collection of reasons. Well, I, I do believe God is sovereign over everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is 
fully uh, justifiable from the Bible. Mm. I think about um, the story of Nebuchadnezzar, for example. I was reading that in, from Daniel recently. Um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled for a time so that um, he would know and realise that God was sovereign over the, all the kingdoms of the earth and puts over them anyone he wishes. I, um, there's lo- I mean, I, I remember you said that, but um, again, you know, that, that's, mm. yeah, I, I know what you mean. And there is a sort of fatalistic strand, isn't there, in Jewish thought, which will say things like, we see it in Paul mm. as well. Mm. You know, we have sort of the notion of election and predestination comes out of, of some of Paul's mm. statements in Romans 9 and the like. Mm. Um, but, you know, that's a way of seeing the world that is trying to stress God's sovereignty overall. And sometimes it can get pressed to a point where it can feel as if every single thing that is happening is directly caused by God. Mm. And I don't believe that, that every single thing that's happening is directly caused by God. But rather, you know, I believe that it's permitted by God. And there may be a whole load of reasons why that is that are beyond our ken. There are certainly different positions that we could, sure. we could probably talk sure. through yeah. the, 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 the specifics of God's sovereignty. Okay. But I can, suppose one... I, can I, I don't want to go too sorry, much because yeah. it's, it's clear that we have slightly mm. different views on that. But I think the crux mm. of it mm. is coming back to the command. Mm. You, you said that we sort of can't find anywhere where there's an exception to singing in the Bible. Well... Mm. What if we put it the other way around and saying, can we find any thou shalt style of command where not to sing is really to go against a very clear thou shalt command? And I'm not sure I can find that. seems to me, yes, we are advised to sing. It's said that it's a good thing, you know, (laughs) to sing. But do any of those scriptures reach the level of a thou shalt? Mm. You see, what I'm trying to say here is if if it really is a thou shalt, then I could see the idea that God would protect us if we followed that command. That would have more force to it. Mm. But if it doesn't rise to the level of thou shalt, I'm I'm much more dubious. Well, in our service, um, in the Church of England, services often include Psalm 95. It was actually part of Book of Common Prayer, morning prayer service, um, but a number of the common worship, which is the Church of England's sort of more modern liturgy, includes Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 begins, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. Uh, Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. Mm -hmm. Now, um, what I found difficult in our church was when we would say this, you know, we'd often include a psalm, and this was sometimes part of the liturgy. We would say this together, and I would say, how can we say this mm. and not sing it or not sing? Sure. The whole psalm is a, an exhortation to worship in song and in joy, and it says, do not, mm-hmm. do not harden your hearts, and do not be like the ancient Israelites, and it references a time when they didn't trust God to protect and provide for them. So I would say... That, that even in times of trouble or, or difficult times, and especially during those times, we should sing. And uh, does it reach the level of command? Um, well, I, I, I would say yes, it does. Actually, the only <laughs> yeah. the only times in Scripture mm. that you can really find references to singing in the church, it is exhorting the church to sing, and there are yeah. hundreds of references to singing. But an exhortation is not a command, is it? It's more like saying, come on, this is the kind of thing we really ought to be doing. Let's get on and do this. It doesn't seem to be quite like thou shalt do such and such. I mean, if we were to agree on this, we could say, for example, um, go back to the car park thing. We could still do that singing. Let's go into the car park and Mm. really sing our hearts out and and use Psalm 95 at that point. But when we go back into the church where we're all close together, etc., let's not do that. Let's be cautious. What would be wrong with that? But I think... 
I think, I mean, because one of the, the things which I've been, um, has kind of um, smoothed things over really uh, over the last few months in our church, before we last you know, couple of weeks started singing inside, was that we uh, we did sing outside. Okay. Good Friday, we had an outdoor service and so on. And I know a lot of churches have, have done things like that. Um, so yes, I mean, in a sense, yes, that is fulfilling that exhortation. Um, I think I'd say two things. Um, the first thing is that this exhortation to worship saying it in in the church it's either relevant to our worship as a whole or it isn't and it seems to me that if you say psalm 95 is relevant to our worship in church in some bits but not in others then i'd say well why is the the you know relevant to worship but not the singing bit it doesn't have an exception clause the second thing i would say is what is controlling the worship in the church now i believe that god solely should be in charge if you like should direct the worship of God's church. Um, you know, the, the first greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And, you know, um, not to put any, any idols in, in the way. And I think if we are not singing in church for safety, then my worry is that safety is bigger in the church than God is. And that's where we can agree. I think that has become the case. Mm. It's just over the details that we're disagreeing. Yeah. Let me just push it one more. <laughs> sure. Let me just push it once no, more. No, just, Let's say we yeah. didn't follow any of these rules. So en masse, all right? So, you know, mm. legal action is not going to be brought against every church in the land, all right? <laughs> so mm. let's say we did mm. this en, en masse. And the consequence of that, this is hypothetical, that mm. there was a mass of transmission within the churches that went into the media. Look at these wicked Christians, what they're doing. They don't care. Um, they're all a bunch of superstitious idiots. And look what's happened. Mm. Now, that could have happened. Now, you're saying that God would have protected from us from that. I'm questioning whether that would have been a presumptuous position. I th Well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, I referred to Daniel um, earlier, but if you, and another one of the stories in, in Daniel, you know, the fiery furnace, the classic Sunday school mm. story. But, um, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say to, the, to Nebuchadnezzar, I think it is Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? At that point, I think um, so. I, well, I've, I've only read it, read it <laughs> yeah. the other day, but um, yes, I think I think it's Nebuchadnezzar, and they say God can protect us, but if He doesn't, we will still, you know, not bow down to your statue. Right. And um, I think you know, it's this it goes back to the fear of the Lord. You know that so much of it, I think, is this fear that something terrible will happen if we do it. I know several churches that have been singing all the way through as far as, you know, we've been allowed to meet, mm. and even, you know, some churches who haven't, as we mentioned, John MacArthur, mm. no outbreaks of COVID. Interesting. And, mm. you know, realistically speaking, if you look at the data, most of the transmission does not occur in the community like that, in those kind of events and gatherings. Think of the Black Lives Matter, for example. If there'd been a, an outbreak of COVID after Black Lives Matter, for example, mm. would people have been saying, oh, well, oh. shouldn't have gone out. Yeah, but, you know. the, but the point there is that it, the, most of that was outside. Yes. There is research to suggest very strongly that being outside makes a huge difference. Sure, I, I suppose... There's a lot of those scenes we saw of people on the beach and the like, mm. and people sitting in front of their TV saying, oh, these irresponsible people actually didn't really make much difference. It's the inside that mattered. I, th I think, that, I mean... The, Which kind of makes sense, really. The point is, I suppose, is just that some things are worth doing, mm. whether they're dangerous or not. And I think that singing in church is worth doing even if it carries a slightly elevated risk. And I think, as I said, I don't think that the risk factor should really come into it. Well, um, it it's certainly up to people. I, I think there may be other things. So, for example, if a church said, well, we're going to have two services, in one service we're going to sing, and in another service we're not, and then allow people to make their own choice. 
Well, that's an interesting um, way of looking at it. But it's, yes, a, it's a possibility. Yes. Uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily. I could. I can understand why a church wouldn't want to do that. But mm. if I had a lot of cautious people in the congregation as a pastor, that may be a, a choice that you would want to go down. Mm. Trying to cater for different people. I mean, there are all sorts of shades of grey in this, aren't there? Absolutely. Um, yes, and I don't want to give the impression that I think you know masks are the be all mm. and end all. Oh, or, of course, or yeah. The anti-social distancing. Mm. I've always been rather sceptical that masks make. A huge difference. I mean, I know there's this thing about the, mm. there's this meme about the mosquito and the barbed wire fence, isn't there? You know, it's completely useless. A virus goes through the cloth and it's just like that. Mm. You know, you can see evidence on both sides and papers written on both sides, but just trying to be commonsensical about it. it seems, you know, if you've got saliva particles that are coming out, some of those are going to get mm. caught, all right? So I think it makes sense that there's at least some minimal effect on preventing other people, mm. especially if you, you know, you have symptoms and you're coughing and you're sneezing. That makes some kind of sense to me, but not the other way around you know it's not going to protect you from virus particles freely flowing around in the air that's yeah mm. quite fine so I'm, I'm not trying to say that i think you know masks are really really important i was just trying to stand up for yeah. churches yeah. that used them in the early mm. days um mm. part of the problem with masks is there isn't very much quality evidence Mm. Um, there is a certain absence and many people perceived that the decision to make masks compulsory was a political one rather than a scientific yes. one and that therein lies the problem I totally agree with that mm. absolutely I totally agree with that and that's one of the reasons why I'm almost refusing to use a mask anywhere now mm. Mm. <laughs> and now that it's mm. a matter of you know, legality that you're, you're free not to use yes. them because I do think its primary function all along was psychological even mm. if there was some slight merit to it in a medical sense and I think it's the effect the multiple effect of that is very damaging mm. you know it sort of says we're all biohazards it functions ritually doesn't it to sort of create a sense mm. of fear there's an unseen enemy all around us this sort of thing and and it signals to other people that you're following the correct narrative that's handed down to us and if you're not wearing a mask then you're one of the wicked people sort of there are a lot of psychological things attached to the way masks work and i think that's why mm. now particularly now we really do need to mm. perhaps even teach about this we need to talk about this amongst ourselves say, Look, why are we wearing these masks you know thinking about that service i went to the other day when 25 people out of 30 were wearing it and i can't think of a good reason why anybody was wearing it mm. just sitting there except they've been conditioned mm. to and i think that's a very unhealthy situation very unhealthy yeah. i think w whatever the rights and wrongs are of the science around around masks and i and i think i mean the um dr colin axon who was um was a, an, a not on sage but an advisor government advisor he says the best thing you can say about masks is that if they have an effect it's not measurable and I think, you know, that they may have some very, very tiny effect, but I think encouraging everyone to wear them is the psychological effect, which is far, far bigger mm. and more worrying. Yes. There are still people now in our church who, as you mentioned with your service, people who won't come to church without putting a mask on. Mm. And it's not because of the, the evidence says that that's the only, you know, that makes it safe. Mm. It's mm. because they believe they will not be safe unless they have a piece of cloth over their mouth. Is there anybody who says, you know, from a scientific point of view, is there anybody who makes that case? That you no. yourself are protecting yourself by wearing a mask? No, I, I don't think so. But I agree with you. Yeah. I think a lot of people mm. do believe that, yes. Mm. Yes. And it, it, it just... This, this all... Yeah, go on. Mm -hmm. I just, it's just almost like a talisman. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think Dr. Gary Sidley, you mentioned him earlier, talked about these... Mm. Oh, I mm. can't remember that there's a word for it or a phrase for it. A behaviour, psychological behaviour, which means, oh, it keeps me safe, mm. but it, it, it's, it's a crutch. That's my problem with so many of the social distancing yes. measures or anti-social distancing measures. It's a crutch. Maybe they make a small difference, mm. but people come to trust them yes. rather than 
you know, anything sensible. Absolutely. So that it's crucial now that we critique these things. Mm. Very hard to do. Yeah. Going to be called nutters for even even suggesting it, mm. um, <laughs> yeah. which is crazy. Crazy thing yeah. at first. Uh, well, we yeah. did mention asymptomatic transmission, which of course is the mm. premise behind all of this. And um, you know, I'm no expert, but um, mm. I was listening to Dr. Claire Craig, yeah. the Question Everything mm. conference. And I'll put links to that. Fascinating. Nine hours of stuff going on there. Yes. And uh, she was saying that really the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 is really poorly understood at all. Mm. And she talked about, there are models about this asymptomatic transmission, but she says that they tend to assume mm. the reality of this. And she described the whole thing as a fairy tale. Yeah. Now, maybe she's being hyperbolic there, but nevertheless, it's, mm. you know, <laughs> her view of it is, is, is very low indeed. Yeah. She says that there is some real world data, mm. but they do not show evidence of asymptomatic transmission leading to any serious illness so you might have somebody who's you know it's a positive case and they're breathing mm. out and somebody else becomes a positive case or they might have you know mild illness from it mm. but she says there's no evidence that people actually end up going to hospital with this or dying mm. and i thought it was really interesting that nick hudson um, i think he's the head of panda mm. at the same conference suggested that from a an ecologist's point of view it may be interpreted that that low level of asymptomatic transmission might actually be a natural means of inoculation. That's interesting. Indeed. Mm. So if people are picking up mm. a low level of disease from other people just through, through breathing mm. and don't get a serious illness, but they're going to develop natural immunity from that, that could actually yeah. be a positive thing. So some of this mask wearing could actually be preventing natural immunity from happening. Mm. It's just a fascinating it, thing. It, it is. It is. Um, it's, it's the narrative, isn't it? We go back to the trust, the science trust, the narrative. Because I think that the narrative which has been presented to us and which most people or a, a good percentage of people seem to believe is that COVID is passed from person to person and it's being transmitted primarily from person to person by these asymptomatic carriers. Yes. And as Dr. Claire Craig points out, that that's almost certainly not true. Um, and, you know, one of the things actually which I find most interesting about this is if you look, uh, and I, I did this, so back in the uh, December, I made a little app on my website, a page on my website, which has tracked the data, COVID data for Essex. And um, you look at the curve of it, it peaks on pretty much the same day in every part of Essex, every region in Essex. And then if you look at the data for the country from the 19th of July, or roughly, the, there was declining numbers of cases. Um, and again, if you look at that, it's every region in the country, it starts declining on this about the same day. And you think, does, does that indicate to you that this is a, a disease which is being passed from person to person? It is something which is being carried in the air. There's so many factors, like, like um, Claire Craig said, you know, we really don't understand how this virus is transmitted and that the official narrative about this is so, I think, so far from what the truth is. And there are so many indicators of that. Yet why is it seemingly uncontradictable in the mainstream? Bizarre, isn't it? It is absolutely bizarre. There isn't any opportunity for discussing the possibility of 
truth or, or falsity. It's just this is the narrative, mm. as you say. And you actually point to, you know, is his name uh, mm. f- uh, Professor Frank Faraday? Is that his name? Oh, uh, yeah, Frank Faraday, yes. Yes. Mm. And um, mm. he turned up in that conference as well. And he gave a lecture about freedom. And he was kind of saying really that, you know, we can have all these disagreements about the science of, of this, whether we should lock down this mm. much or that much or take these measures or whatever. But as far as he was concerned, the crucial thing is freedom. Mm. That's actually the greatest value that we have. Mm. Um, mm. And I do agree with that, actually. Yeah. Once you've lost freedom, I think you quickly lose everything else. Mm. You actually did a theological exploration of this by going back to yeah. the story of Adam and Eve at the beginning of Genesis. Do you want to mm. say anything about that? Um, well, one of the things which never really struck me before, thinking about how governments and rulers should be, you know, as a Christian, I, I would say, well, we need to look at how God rules the world. And it really struck me in a way that I'd never never seen before how God gives Adam and Eve the choice. He considers their freedom so worthwhile that he doesn't constrain them. He says, don't eat from the fruit of the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil, but he doesn't kind of force them. Yeah. He considers their freedom to be worth the price of what the consequences were. And I just thought, wow, you know, that's so different from the way that, that the government has been acting recently. <laughs> Yes, because although in a sense we're still left with the freedom of choice to disobey because mm. government isn't able actually yes. to come around to all our houses and put handcuffs on, if government yeah. could come around to all our houses and put handcuffs on, that's exactly mm. what they would have done because they'd have said, this is so serious. But as you say in the mm. in the picture there we have of the tree of the, the knowledge of good yeah. and evil, the, the command is don't eat yes. from that. But they're allowed to eat from that, although there are consequences for doing so. Mm. Um, nevertheless, they are given that freedom of choice, that responsibility. We've not mm. been left with responsibility during lockdown really have we we haven't exercised our own responsibility it's been taken from us i was just reading um reading or watching um there was a, an episode last night a, a australian thing or was it oh anyway it's an interview with brendan o'neill and uh, lionel shriver and um they were saying how personal responsibility has become a dirty word yes um yes. and i thought well that says a lot doesn't it i i think personal responsibility is is the christian way psalm 32 i think talks about do not be like uh, the horse or the mule which have to be controlled by bit or bridle or, or they will not come to you. Mm. This is how God treats us. He, he encourages us to do the right thing. You know, look, these are, the, these are my ways. These are the consequences of not following my ways. But he doesn't compel us or coerce us. And I think that's such a becomes such an important thing in, in mm. you know, the way I've, I've been thinking about freedom. That you know, freedom is a truly a, a value which is worth um, fighting for, and people in previous generations thought that was the case. Mm. It's just so tragic that today's generation don't know the value of freedom, possibly because we've grown up with it. We yes. we just don't understand what it's like to lose it. Yes, in fact, just a couple of days ago, there was a, a video by the TV presenter historian Neil Oliver. Oh, Neil, Neil Oliver. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether you saw that. Yeah, uh, it was on yeah. GB News, but mm. it was a it was a monologue, six minutes or so, and it was really stirring, mm. saying exactly that. Yeah. You know, people died for these freedoms. And now they're just being lost as if they didn't mean anything. Tragic. I, I recommend everybody to listen to his uh, mm. very carefully chosen words on that. And he says that mm. he'd rather risk getting COVID-19 than mm. lose freedom. Um, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah, so they're talking about government. Mm. Um, one of the things you do is to point to, I think it's in Psychology Today or something like that anyway, it's a piece called 20 Signs That Your oh, Partner yes. Is Controlling. Uh, and you go abusive through... Abusive partner. Yeah. That's right. And all these characteristics yes. of the abusive partner. And yeah. you question each characteristic. Mm. And some of them you say, mm, no, that one doesn't apply. But I don't know, about 15 out of 20, you, mm. you say, 
Yeah, that seems to be how the government has been treating yeah, us. Yeah. Maybe you'll comment on that in a second. But mm. I, I want also to bring up the very, very famous passage in the Bible from Romans 13, mm. verses 1 to 5. Famously problematic. You know, tyrants have appealed to this. And it's basically, mm. you know, God's put the government there. You've got to obey mm. the government, whether they're abusing you or not, sort of thing. Let's uh, just have the quote here. So this is, I'm not sure which translation it is, but anyway. Let everyone, this is verse one, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Then it goes on, consequently, whoever rebels against the authorities, rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Mm. And it goes on, and actually how it goes on is important important but uh do you want to say anything about that don't we just have to obey everything the government says even if they're acting abusively towards us yeah this has been a key text for the church over the last 18 months and i've had this quoted to me and or or i've seen this quoted in numerous on numerous occasions which is basically justifying exactly as you say to obey the government unless i think the the only caveat that people tend to give is in in acts acts 429 or 529 it's i think where it says we must obey god rather than men and what people have been saying is well we should obey the government unless they compel us to actually do anything wrong that's the argument which people are using so they say well you know public health you know we're not asked to do anything wrong so let's obey the government and mask social distancing for example um, stay at home orders all that all that sort of thing um i think though that this text romans 13 is more complicated than that yes um in particular i don't think paul would have envisioned a government with total control of every aspect of life yeah. in a sort of totalitarian way there was no national health service for a start so <laughs> exactly exactly yeah. mm. you know i mean you think about this even nero who was persecuting the church and I think most scholars believe Romans was written before the time of Nero anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. Yes. And they say rulers bear the sword for no, uh, they're not, they don't bear the sword for no reason. Mm. They are God's servants again, they say. And I think what Paul is saying is that, you know, we should obey the government in what is right and good because they are mm. God's servants. But the corollary to that is that they are God's servants and they can't define what is good and right to redefine that away from what God says is good and right. Absolutely. I mean, I think verse 3 always does it for Mm. me um, because Paul has been saying what he's been saying and I ended with those words, you know, God has instituted and Mm. those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And then he uses the word, whatever it is in the Greek, for, Mm. (laughs) you know, Mm. because. In other words, to say, this is why I've just been saying what I'm saying, because, for, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, Mm. but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you'll be commended. Yeah. That implies, doesn't it? Just what you've been saying. The government mm. is trying to do the right. Yeah. So, yeah. so, in fact, if the government is doing the wrong, mm. then this is relaxed immediately. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, I, I think one, one of the things which um, I, I've been meaning to do a, bit, a video about this for a while now, and I, I may get round to it in a few weeks, but the idea being that defining what is good is god's job and if a government start defining what is good they are effectively putting themselves in god's place Mm. and what we are being sold is like a new religion yes and this happens on many many um, other issues as well like for example uh, transgender Mm. what we are being told is that unless you completely affirm someone in their chosen gender identity all of that you know you're being hateful 
Mm. I mean, none of that's not the government saying that, but that's kind of there have been some worrying developments about that. Yes. Um, but this is this is the thing, you know, that it's kind of it all it's part of the package mm. uh, of the way that things are dealt with now. That this is the good, the lockdown is the good, saving lives is the good. You know, that's the good thing, and you must not see it any other way. Mm. We are, have the power to define right and wrong. Now, if you think about the third lockdown at the beginning of this year, um, one of my um, friends from church is a, a young woman who is actually um, a student. She's just um, done her first year at university. And of course, it's all been on Zoom and everything. Oh, yeah. And um, I have witnessed her, I, I witnessed her mental health just go really downhill because she was unable to go to university. She was... And, and I... I felt like the best and most loving thing to do for her was to actually meet up. Um, I think it was technically legal because it would have counted as work, um, but certainly it would not have been recommended by the government. But for the sake of her mental health and you know her own well-being, I just felt like that was I had no choice. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that you know surely we should be free to do the right thing, to do good, not to do evil. And, you know, think about what Jesus said um, on the Sabbath day. He healed a man and the the Pharisees were very upset. And Jesus said, well, what's lawful on the Sabbath to do good and to heal or to do evil? You know, when the government start to say, no, doing good is forbidden, the good is this. That is totalitarianism. When they are putting themselves in the place of God and they are assuming a role which is um, beyond what God has given them as God's servants uh, to do. So, yes, I think Romans 13 cannot justify obeying the government in every measure that the government says, particularly not when it comes to these big issues of right and wrong, good and, and evil and, and so on. They, don't, they just don't have that power to define those things. Mm, totally agree. Um, I'm conscious that you need to stop in about 12 minutes from now. Oh, yes, give, yeah, give or yeah. take. Yes. Yeah, give or take. But nevertheless, <laughs> yeah. there's an awful yeah. lot more to discuss here. So I'm going to mm. skip quite a lot. Maybe we could have a, another discussion about that. But what I wanted to ask you to end today, really, one of your mm. videos, you call for a new reformation, not just for the church, but for the whole of society. Mm. So you argue that, you know, there was a previously uh, a reformation, which was trying to put the Bible center instead of man's traditions mm. and the distortions and corruption that were centered around around those yeah. traditions. Um, mm. So my question to you is, um, I agree that we need a, a reformation in the church and in society. Mm. How on earth do we get that, considering that we're not all, yeah. when, when you take the church and society, we're not all collected around sola scriptura, are we? We, we don't have this, mm. this one mm. scripture we can get around and say, if we can interpret this correctly, then this is our authority, this is our guide. So how do we get mm. a society-wide new reformation? Well, um, the uncomfortable answer to that is that I think I say I say uncomfortable. It could be comforting as well, and I think it is. But that it, it's a work of God, uh, not a work of man. Right. And and that is what what happened at the Reformation. Yep. Um, there are so many parallels between what's happening now and what happened five hundred years ago. For example, the corruption of and the conflation of church power and secular power. Hmm. Many Church of England bishops, for example, have secular roles on committees on as part of government. And I, I think that's a, a wrong thing. Mm. I think that's part of the reason why the church's response has been so anemic, because so many of the bishops and the clergy have been on the committees who are making the decisions. 
yeah. about public health, and mm. they haven't been able to. And that's where the group think takes place, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. You've got to have the the right think. If you don't think the right way, then you get the raised eyebrow at you and all mm. that sort of thing. It dilutes the tension. As I go back to Martin Erdman, please listen to his interviews with yeah. us here. Um, it dilutes that tension that must exist mm. in order for the church to have a healthy relationship yes. with the state, which is yes. one of tension. And, and so I think that some separation of of the church. Now, I, I do like the Church of England's established status, and um, I think it, it, it in the best in in the best sense. I think it did work for 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 many years, but I think it has become corrupted. And so I'm not, you know, for kind of total disestablishment. Uh, that may be where we end up. Um, Maybe a difference I, between us, but yes. <laughs> but then again, well, I'm but, a Methodist, so there you go. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I mean, I, I think there are advantages to establishment, and perhaps that will be. Um, I, I don't know. Any, anyway, I'm not, I, I'm not. I don't think that's the key thing here. I think that okay. there are a lot of corruptions in the church, and um, I think if those are sorted out, if that's possible, we may witness the death of the Church of England as well. Um, or certainly, if current trends continue, I can foresee a time when the Church of England kind of fades into irrelevance and obscurity mm. and is, is replaced by something more kind of spiritual, mm. Christian uh, and, and dynamic. As you know, you mentioned... And stronger. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that much of the that. spiritual life in the, in the country is actually outside the Church of England. Mm. And that's more true the higher up the levels of the Church of England you go, um, sadly. Um, I, I said that I was a Methodist, but I, that was just an historical thing. Yes. But uh, I wasn't saying Methodism is free from the kinds of things you've just been describing. Certainly not. It's, it's all across denominations. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, yes. Yeah. Even the free churches, which are supposedly independent, have been uh, following much of the, the guidance and going down the same lines. So we need a reformation of the whole church. Yes. There's a lovely quote from Martin Luther. You know, uh, we were celebrating about 500 years from uh, when uh, Martin Luther nailed up his 95 theses to the, the door of the church in Wittenberg mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah I love his, his quote, which is, I sat in the tavern and drank beer and the word of God did the rest. And um, I, <laughs> Yeah, right. Lo- that is lovely. I think there is something, um, something lovely about that. But, you know, mm. it, it mm. is, at the end of the day, I think people need to catch this sort of vision that there is something about the bible and about christianity which is worth keeping Mm. and it's been interesting to me over the last year or two that people like douglas murray people like maybe um andrew doyle um tom holland um and so on you know have have written Mm. and commented about yes i'm an atheist but i recognize the heritage that we owe to christianity Mm. and um, i was reading an article actually in the critic just this morning that was saying that um, everything we owe, our liberal values, come from Christianity. I think people are recognising that and the value in Christianity. Mm. And I think that, you know, we are looking for a reformation. I think it is happening. I would say, you know, we just need for people to recognise that the values that we hold dear, which have been in absence over the last 18 months, come from that Christian Mm. worldview. And, you know, the tolerance, the truth, you know, not deceiving people, not compelling, not coercing people, not using fear. Mm. Um, all of that comes from that Christian view of the world. And that's what we need to reform and recover if we want to, to see a real 
a change. I, I agree with you. And actually something of a revolutionary spirit, I don't mean you know, out in the streets with guns mm. blasting, I don't mean that kind of revolution, but mm. change, um, acting for change. I think that the Bible's been domesticated mm. in many cases, but actually it's a, in many, many ways a revolutionary bunch of texts. Yeah. And one of the things I love, there's a portrayal of Jesus, it's called the Angry Christ. I think it's a South American artist. Mm. Uh, Christ directly pointing at the person mm. looking at the picture with an accusing finger and with a stern view. Mm. And it's a side of Christ that I think is often neglected. Yeah. You know, he's pointing at those who are putting heavy burdens on other people. But in this case, the finger is pointing directly at you as the person seeing him. And so, you mm. know, it invites you to think, good heavens, you know, am I the one who is not following what Christ is saying of the scriptures that he was you know, so much embedded in? Um, I think we need to mm. de-domesticate the Bible and read it again to remove from it so much of the cultural baggage mm. um, that is preventing us from seeing that revolutionary spirit in the text. Yeah. Um, to end with, can I invite you to say something about what I think may be the essence of this or the beginning of this approach of the New Reformation Mm. which is not to live by lies Mm. and you were quoting from Solzhenitsyn's famous essay Live Not By Lies uh, which actually I hadn't read until very recently Mm. Uh, really really striking you'll say more about it than this but to me the essence of it is to say look it starts with each individual choosing not to internalize the lies of the state yes quite irrespective of what you say to anybody else it's got to start with you you've got to live that way that's a Mm. stirring uh, piece and i think everybody should read it yeah i found the essay really moving and really um a a real call to action actually for me and uh, the quote and i think um james lindsay um who wrote the cynical or co-wrote the cynical theories um book quoted this um as well that um let the lie come into the world let it triumph even, but not through me. Yes, And I think that is such a profound mm. message for our times, that if you believe that there are lies going on in COVID or other areas like transgender, then we are not obliged. And in fact, I think we should live by the truth. You know, Jesus said, actually, anyone who is on the side of the truth listens to me. Mm. I think that is such a key thing that, you know, we should be truth seekers and, and seek to live in line with the truth. And the government do not have the power to redefine truth. There is a truth in the world and we must seek to align ourselves with that truth. Mm. And it's when we do that and when enough of us stand up and say, I don't believe this is true yes. and I am not going to live as if this is true. I'm going to live in accordance with what I believe the truth to be, mm. um, then I think that will bring about a change. Mm. Yeah, I think that's what we need to do, really, to, to say, I'm going to live by the truth. Yeah, so I would put that Solzhenitsyn essay together with another classic text, which is mm. a chapter from the book, They Thought They Were Free by Milton Mayer. And this is chapter 13, mm. where he's talking to somebody who lived through the development of the, the Nazi regime in the mm. 1930s. And There's so much in there that's deeply disturbing, which mirrors a lot of things that are going on now, which I find very disturbing. Mm. But one thing that was very clear was that people were saying, look, we can see things happening, an undercurrent of things Mm. happening. And then others were saying, oh, you're being over the top. Things won't go that far, kind of thing. And and they did go that far, incrementally, bit by bit. Life seemed to carry Mm. on. The cars were still on the roads. People were still walking to the shops and that sort of thing. Mm. But underneath this bit by bit, things were changing the government was lying, saying one thing and then doing another thing. And, yeah. But it required people to stand up and say, 
no. And there weren't enough people doing yeah. that because you're going to get laughed at. You're not going to get the job and all that kind of thing. Mm. So I think those two texts together, we really need to internalize those and take the messages from them. If we don't stand up, mm. we don't live by the truth, then we're in, in danger of this mm. kind of thing going absolutely authoritarian. Um, so we, we have to internalize those messages and live that way. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, we're on four o'clock. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> you you have to leave soon. I'm conscious of that. So we need to draw this to a conclusion now. I just wanted to remind mm. people that you have your couple of ministries. So obviously the Phil Saker Making Sense of the World from a Christian perspective, the YouTube channel, we've been discussing very much the kind of substance that you deal with there on your videos, mm. but not so much the other one. Do you want to quickly tell us about Understand the Bible, mm. which is understandthebible.uk? Yes. So this I started because I just realized really that in working with a lot of people, over the last um, last few years who've come to faith and wanted to explore Christianity, that there, there was just nothing that I could give them um, from someone who had no background in Christianity or no background in the Bible to explain what Christianity was. Nothing as a sort of comprehensive course or, or something like that. So I created one. So Understand the Bible is all about taking someone uh, who knows nothing about Christianity to, you know, just to, to knowing everything that you need to know. It starts at the very beginning with what is Christianity. And um, then the next course is how to live as a Christian. And uh, in the uh, the next term from the autumn, I'll be working through the creed and, you know, other bits and pieces just to kind of fill out that understanding of the Christian faith. Um, mm, so that's, that's what it's all about. Okay, well, just to end with, let's say, uh, let's not live by lies. Let's think critically and also theologically, even if other people around mm. us are not doing that. Let's do that. Let's take your model and run with that each in our own way. Thank you ever so much, Phil. Phil Saker, not Phil Saker. Yes. <laughs> Phil Saker for Thanks. coming on the show. It'd be an absolute delight to speak to you, and I hope to speak to you, have the opportunity to speak to you again sometime in the future. Thanks very much. Thank you, and I'd, I'd like to come on and, um, yeah, continue the conversation. And, um, mm. yeah, it's been really, uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Absolutely brilliant. Thanks very much. Okay, I'll let you get on with uh, what you've got to do. Thank you <laughs> very much. children up, is that right? Yes, yes, right, yes. Show notes for this programme can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com, podcast music by Anthony Rajakoff, attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international. You have been listening to me, Julian Charles, and my guest, the Reverend Phil Saker, who has kindly agreed to join us again in a few weeks from now. But in the meantime, I'm planning other programming, and I very much look forward to speak to you again in the very near future.